Okay. We're recording. And if you say something. Something. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> Growing up, I had one of those dads who did everything themselves. From leaky faucets to renovating rooms, building a deck or a garage, even repairing lawnmowers, he once fixed a toaster by splicing a new electrical cord and plug. While most, I imagine, would have thrown it away and simply run to Walmart to buy a new one, well, that just wasn't how we did it at my house. One memory in particular, my dad and I were in the garage, he insisted I learned how to change the oil in our 1986 Ford Aerostar. I was about 11 years old. I would have rather been simply building or tinkering with a computer than putting on coveralls and rolling underneath a one and a half ton van. It's important to know how things work so you can fix them, so you can be independent, he would tell me. My disinterest was loud enough at one point, he paused and looked at me. What are you going to do when you're driving and your car breaks down? He asked, the oil emptying into the pan just below where we had removed the filter. I'll hire someone to do it. I'll do what I enjoy and going into computers, I'll make plenty of money to pay people to do the things I don't want to. Well, I'll never forget that. I doubt he's listening to this now, but I do reflect back, wondering if I would have answered him differently now. While I don't fancy myself a mechanic or a general contractor or any kind of professional tradesman, these were all valuable lessons even if I still tend to agree with my much younger self. I grew up at a time when we seemed to have transitioned away from mechanical, more repairable goods to more electronic-intensive sensor-laden technologies, where having the latest version of something is sometimes more important than having any version at all. And I keep coming back to our buying habits, my recent conversation with Matt Banover, and our recent experience shopping for denim jeans with Hardenko. Uh, the emphasis on longevity and materials and craftsmanship. I literally stood with Melissa, the person who made the pants I wear. This all led me to my next conversation with Mary Ruth Shields, owner of United Sewing and Design. I was first introduced to Mary Ruth by Sarah Bodley in our mutual connection with Reset in Hartford, Connecticut, when I discovered the many burlap sacks left over from roasting coffee at Ashlawn Farm, who were very keen on finding good uses for them. At the time, I didn't know anyone who sewed or still made things. That wasn't part of the aerospace-related industry anyway. I remember feeling at home with Mary Ruth, who had come down one morning to walk me through her design process and see the coffee bag fabric. She was as happy as I was to nerd out over materials, upcycling materials, and the like. We connected this spring over a new tote bag project we were launching. Entering her workroom brought me right back to spending time in the basements at home or my grandfather's house. In the basement, we had scraps of wood and washed out glass pasta sauce jars filled with miscellaneous screws and washers and whatnot. You could see that things were made here, made purposefully and with the goal of minimizing waste at all costs. What I appreciated most during our conversation was how calmly she's able to put things into context and shares a little bit about how she goes about her ways, acknowledging that it takes effort and it's not for the faint of heart. As always, you can reach me by email at donald at curatedct.com. Here's my conversation with Mary Ruth Shields. I hope you enjoy it. Mary Ruth, thank you so much for well, being here, we're at, we're at work. We work in the same co-working space here. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. Donald, I'm very excited to talk to you. Yay. Okay, so I would love just to start at the beginning, um, a little bit about you, where, where you're from, and um, uh, you know, what, where did you, did you grow up around here? Uh, how, did, how did you get started? Well, um, I'm actually from Virginia. I, my ancestors were all 
from there, uh, you know, came over before the revolution and all that stuff. And uh, my female ancestors were all craftswomen. They, of course, they did all the cooking, they uh, sewed things, they knitted, they crocheted. Um, my uh, father's female ancestors were quilters. Um, and then my mother uh, was also a needlepoint person, and her mother did a lot of sewing. So this whole making stuff uh, with uh, yarn and fabric is, is just kind of unavoidable for me. Um, and my, all of my siblings were makers, and so making was just kind of a default. Everybody just did it. Um, so I, I grew up in Virginia, and then I went to graduate school the first time uh, for my Master's of Science in Textiles up in Rochester, New York. And that's where I met my uh, former husband, and we had our kids there. And then uh, his father died in 98, so we moved down here to take care of his mom. And, um, and then I'm still here, uh, which is perfectly fine. Um, so uh, here I've uh, you know, made a place for myself in the sewing community to start with. And I've uh, done a lot of different activities in the fashion realm and in the manufacturing uh, part of that realm. And so that's how kind of I ended up here. And, um, you know, I've had numerous different jobs over the years, and I feel like all of those experiences that I had were preparing me for owning the social enterprise that I have right now. I'm glad you mentioned the social enterprise. I definitely want to learn more about that. Before we do, how did you get started with United Sewing and Design? Uh, what's the origin story there? Well, I've owned uh, multiple different businesses that were making stuff by sewing. Most of the time it was apparel, um, but they were all uh, decentralized, um, me working by myself or with other people who were in their own spaces. So United Sewing and Design is the first place where I've actually had everybody all together in one spot. And uh, we started during the pandemic, it was 2021. And uh, so that's, that's how I ended up here at the co-working space at Reset. Wonderful. Yeah. Yes, and Reset is here in, in Hartford in the, in the Parkville neighborhood. That's actually where we're sitting right now. Yes. Um, great, now, so you mentioned, you mentioned school, grad school, uh, RIT being in Rochester and whatnot. So you've, you've had some formal education yourself. Uh, how do people learn your trade today? Has that changed during the span of your career? Well, uh, I don't think the way people have learned to sew has changed really because uh, you either come to it through um, hand, hands-on work, uh, learning on the job, or you study it in college. And the people that study in college are usually the administrative types. Uh, maybe they're working behind the scenes and doing buying you know, for retail stores or something like that. Um, and then the hands-on people are the ones who are actually doing the creation of the product. And uh, for instance, in Europe, um, there's a, a decade or hundreds of years old tradition of lots of handwork. And uh, that is where haute couture comes from. Um, in the United States, though, we're much more interested in doing things with machinery. And so uh, Connecticut had uh, a huge um, textile and um, related industry starting uh, in the mid uh, 16 to 1700s and extending up to the present day. And so, but it was all around machinery. So, um, you know, fulling mills that take uh, wool fabric and make it into something you'd want to wear, or, um, you know, sewing machines, or, uh, you know, stuff like that. So we don't really have as much of the hand um, uh, technique as in Europe. 
Um, but it's definitely, there's definitely a textile industry basis in, in the state of Connecticut. What is, is there anything else significant about that difference that you point out about machinery versus done by hand? Um, I think we've lost in mo the modern era from probably after World War II on, we've lost sight of who makes our stuff. And it's like, you know, uh, taking the kids out to see a dairy farm is a big deal, um, or a chicken, because nobody knows where the egg came from. I mean, yeah, you hmm. see the chicken on, on Sesame Street, but you know, you have to connect the chicken with uh, the egg. Um, so uh, in the United States, back in the 1800s, uh, you went down the street to the lady who made your hat or the man who made your shoes or the woman who sewed your dress or you sewed the dress yourself, and that was it. But uh, during the Civil War and beyond that, uh, the whole apparel industry, at, at least, became mechanized. Um, because there was just so much need for it that we couldn't do the, the people at home making one thing at a time anything anymore. And so, um, you know, that was the end of that. So now um, it's the person that makes that thing that you consume or the animal that um, was slaughtered to make your hamburger is a distant memory, if you even think of it at all. Yeah, so that's, that's where that came from, where the disconnect occurred. It took a long time, but, but I think um, people have just kind of had it with, well, not everybody, but some people <laughs> have just kind of had it with the machine-made, I don't have any idea where this came from, and... and you know, what I do know about it doesn't sound that great. You know, people getting paid 50 cents to make that T-shirt that you buy at Walmart. Um, you know, it's, it's just not a certain segment of the population does not want that anymore. And so now I think we're, the circle is beginning to close again. And we're going back to people making stuff with machines, but by with the, the sense of quality and the sense of workmanship that comes with understanding what it means to make something by hand. Um, you know, like the guys at Hardenco, yeah, I mean, they're using sewing machines, they use a machine to put the rivet at the corner of the pocket, you know, right. and all of that. But, um, you know, they take a lot of time when it comes to choosing the fabric and, and the, the, the cut of the pocket and how narrow the leg is and, how the, what the rivet looks like, you know, and so they've thought of all of that stuff and, you know, crisscrossing the belt loop, you know, right, and, right. and uh, so, you know, that's not Banana Republic anymore. You know, that is somebody who in your, down the street from your house, made that pair of jeans for you and you met that person and now you have a relationship with your jeans. It's totally different than if you had gone to the mall, thank God. Um, yeah, I mean, that's... And people are starving for that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is, I feel like, so much of what I try to do myself, right? I, and I'm, I'm absolutely right. in that category of people who are trying to, you know, at, at every level connect with what we have and what we do and... Um, and you, you got to get kind of weird about it, I guess, because it's not the the mass-produced, normal, typical thing that most people do. Um, so it's, yeah. I, but, I mean, there's a lot of people out there, a significant number of people who don't want that thing that everybody does anymore. I, I was just reading the other day about um, a guy who travels, and he noticed how you know, 30 year, 40, 50 years ago, you'd go to a town and each town was different. And now you go to the town and everybody, every town, large or small, has that strip of stores. 
you know, the, the fast food, the dollar store, the, the big name grocery store. And so it doesn't matter where you go anymore, um, you still see the same thing. And how disheartening that is. And, right. and people don't, people, it's like nobody knew they needed Facebook until they had it. And so nobody knows that they lost this. Right. And they didn't lose it. Their parents lost it. It was, you know, it was before them. <laughs> um, but uh, they, so they don't even know what they've lost. And the soullessness of, of the stuff off the rack. Well, so let's call it that idea of, of people losing something or maybe not even being aware of what they've lost. Because I often talk to, you know, even you know, family members, other friends that, you know, they... They, they they know I, they know I'm I'm the saint this way that I will go I'll drive the extra mile sometimes literally to you know go out of my way to to do something um, uh, uh, particular um, in in what I'm wearing or buying or or what what have you and a lot of times I'll hear people like oh whatever I can't be bothered I don't have time for that or you know they just it, it's like not it's not important to them. Uh, Although in other contexts, you're like, how is this not important? Like you just said how important like family was, or you said how important these other values are that seem to be consistent. But anyway, I guess the question I have is, you know, when we think about this word like quality, you know, it gets thrown around a lot. Um, and, and I guess having studied industrial engineering in college, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that, that, that quality brings up for me. But is, is we think about uh, what people have lost and realizing or understanding how to value the quality in things. How do you, how do you understand quality um, in, in what you do and, and in how, I guess, we make that decision um, and, and value? Right, well, uh, part of the introduction to my textbook um, that I wrote in 2010, Industry Clothing Construction Methods, is, is about quality. And the quality is something that could be anything from um, Forever 21, which is, you know, throwaway clothing, basically, to right. um, your Hardenko jeans, you know, which are uh, not the most expensive jeans on the planet, but probably, you know, are in the three to $500 range. Um, so it's, it's, sort of a, a bargain or an expectation between the person that's selling the item and the person that's buying it. So people who shop at Walmart, of which I am not one, um, have a different expectation than the people that buy my customer's dresses that she sells at the Greenwich Polo Club. You know, there's the, fortunately for us, you know, she expects really high-end quality because her customers do, and so we can afford to make those dresses for her because they sell at a much higher price point because they're selling to a different customer who expects better. Um, but the, um, so there's, there's, you know, a whole range in there of what the word quality means, but basically it's an expectation uh, from the customer about a certain uh, look and uh, ability to function that a thing has. And, you know, my reference point, of course, is clothing. Um, but, uh, you know, it pervades absolutely everything that people consume. You know, the bad quality macaroni and cheese in a box versus my macaroni and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, no, I'm two, two, <laughs> yeah, me too. Two, two, same thing. Still macaroni and cheese, but it's two different outlooks on what what is the quality that I want for macaroni and cheese. Right, and you know, I I, I guess you mentioned you know price and and some of your customers that that you're dealing with uh, the things you're making. So w one thing uh, in a previous conversation I had with. Um, Matt Banover, you know, he, he said to me that, you know, we're just going from price alone isn't even exactly the right way either of figuring out the quality of something, no. you know, just because yeah. it's expensive, it's better, and it's not mm. always yeah. uh, that way. No. Um, so, 
you know, it, um, you know, so often it just doesn't work with, with clothing. Uh, you can spend a lot of money and you could be in a Nordstrom's, but you're still getting the same right. uh, material that isn't well, what, what, durable. Yeah, and, what the difference is there is uh, the craftsmanship. And okay. so what's happened with the fashion industry, especially, well, mostly the European brands, um, is that the company was purchased by a conglomerate. Usually it's uh, Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, LVMH, which is a company that owns a bunch of labels. Yes, but those labels lot. were started by individual designers. They're still named after the designers, but the designer is either deceased or they don't own it anymore. Um, and so when that happens, now the guiding principle of the uh, design house is not an expression of the designer's thought about fashion. It's the stockholder's return on their investment. Right. And so that pushes down on the level of quality and craftsmanship um, in order to raise up the, the uh, return on investment. And so that's, that was one of the cutoff points of, of quality there was the, um, you know, the purchase of, there are very few design houses um, left. Ralph Rucci is one of them who is still owned by the designer himself uh, or themselves. Oh, I'm not familiar with this. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, yeah, you should. He's got a great Instagram feed. Um, but at any rate, I, so, you know, it's like that with chickens. You go back to the chickens. You know, the chicken farmer right. down the road or the egg that you're getting from your neighbor um, tastes different than the egg at the grocery store that's, you know, thousands of laying hens in a giant barn making eggs. So how does someone spot, you know, a consumer, uh, a layperson like, like me, how, how do I spot that craftsmanship or how do I know the, the difference? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, you would know the difference. Yeah, well, see, even having it made by someone local doesn't mean it either because they may not know how to make something of really good quality. Um, the price, like you just said, the price doesn't matter necessarily because now, you know, a $785 pair of pants at Bergdorf Goodman um, is not made like the $785 pair of pants um, that's made by, you know, you, the guy, the Hardenko yeah, people. Over, yeah, exactly. You know, so uh, it, it's difficult. A lot of times a brand label or a referral from someone who's bought products from them. Um, there are a lot of individual makers making apparel one piece at a time um, that are definitely made with the highest quality in mind. I mean, we don't, uh, I will not do the highest quality uh, finish on a tennis dress uh, for my customer because that's not what the customer wants. The customer wants a lower price. So, I mean, I could spend a whole lot of time on that tennis dress and make a $285 tennis dress, but she's not going to sell them. So we make something that fits the quality level uh, and the price point that the, that the customer wants. I mean, it's really good quality, but it's not the highest quality that's possible. So it, it's, it's a hard thing to spot. The other thing that I do is um, I very rarely buy anything that's new. I shop at Goodwill predominantly, and I know what labels to look for. Why, why is that? Why, why, is, why, why shop at Goodwill only? Uh, because I have shamed myself for buying stuff that's made overseas so much that now I can't bear to go into a store, buy something that hasn't been used by someone else first. Um, yeah, I just, I, I cannot make myself buy something from overseas at a department store when I know full well what the situation is with the person that has made that thing. So the other thing is I do buy, um, like from Uniqlo, 
Um, they don't have the most stellar reputation when it comes to their uh, makers, but they're better than some. And then I will wear that item. Like I have a pair of Uniqlo pants that I've had for geez, six or seven years. And they look brand new. Their quality, their fabric quality is top notch. Um, so if I do buy something at, at retail, I will use it because I know the brand. I will use it because it's a basic style forever and ever and ever and ever. So like the skirt that I have on um, came from Goodwill. Uh, I think it's a um, Petit Sophisticate. No, not Petit Sophisticate. It's Ann Taylor Loft. Maybe, okay. um, but that's that's a brand that I know of that uses really good quality fabric, and I buy a style that is not going to go out of style, um, and I know I'm going to get a lot of use out of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I did buy a Ralph Lauren sweater. Actually, no, I di I didn't personally buy it. Someone bought it for me. Uh, a Ralph Lauren sweater, brand new. Must have been, I think, probably Nordstrom or Lord and Taylor, and I, I wore it. I kid you not, once, and it started pilling. Wow! And I, I got rid of it because pills, I, I do not, can't stand them. Um, mainly because something pilling is the mark of a cheap yarn, and okay. so as soon as something starts pilling, I'm like, I'm wearing a cheap garment, and I don't want to wear it anymore. Yeah, so very disappointed in that. Um, it was not, the original price on the item was not cheap. Right. But um, whoever at Ralph Lauren had decided to cut corners, you know, with the yarn, and they chose a crappy yarn, and, and you know, then it pilled. And there you are. And there you are, with a, you know, could have gone to Forever 21 and bought a sweater if I wanted to. Did the pill. Right. You know, if I wanted to wear it once, I could you know, have done that. Fast but. fashion stuff that lasts for maybe a season if you're lucky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so I guess I I, I wanna I wanna shift gears back to your business okay. um, for a moment. Um I I'd, I'd love to learn more about you know, you've mentioned you know a, a customer down in Greenwich and and it, it but you also described someone you know, looking for a, a tennis skirt uh, that at, a, at a different price point and using that to dictate, you know, the level of um, hour, you know, hours that you would spend and the, 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 the finishes and other things that you would or, or wouldn't consider based on that. Um, you know, there are, I, I, I guess... Who who are your customers, and are, are do you, do people buy directly from you, like like product, or are you working with like retailers? Um, and, and well, I I usually work with designers, people who are designing their own line of products. Okay. Um, sometimes those products are patented. You know, maybe it's a new invention. I have two people that I'm working with right now that are doing pa patented products. Um, so a lot of what we do is prototyping, which is figuring out how this person's thing in their head becomes a real thing that they can sell. And so we do um, all the things that go into designing something, whether it's you know, talking about different kinds of materials and, and the parts that go into the thing and, and the design of it and their brand image and marketing and, and sourcing materials and workmanship and just the whole nine yards when it comes to developing a product. But, um, then we'll um, also uh, do production for them. Uh, so it's mostly individuals, uh, although we do work with some small companies, too. Nice. And and as I, you know, look around like the, the our space here, and and you know, having gone into your your workroom before, you know, there are so many different materials. Uh, around and and, and it, I, I think some of them are even piles of, of remnant projects and, and other things and I I don't want to call it scrap because I I think that kind of gives the wrong impression about what what the materials are, um, but you know you you are able to make use of a lot of the materials as you do make things and work on the projects. We you mentioned um, 
you know, not only the quality of the material, but also your design and, and ability to use all of the material. Right. I think there's always this, there's this hint of uh, the sustainability, I think, in, in how you've talked about even how you buy clothing yourself. Right. Um, well, that's part of our social mission. Um, the, I'm a social enterprise. I happen to have two missions. One is hiring returning citizens, and the other one is repurposing and recycling 90% of our waste. And so because we manufacture things with fabric, we make a lot of paper waste, and we also make a lot of flexible goods waste. And so right now, uh, we're recycling both of those things. The paper uh, we collect, we don't throw any pattern paper or um, tag board or anything like that out. Um, we put it in a bin, and then I take it home, and I put it in the recycling, paper recycling. And then uh, we also have, um, like I said, fabric scraps, and either we um, reuse those ourselves to make other things, or we pass those materials out into the community, or we recycle little scraps. So um, some small scraps really aren't able to be made into other stuff. Um, but I, I also take natural fiber materials, so like 100% cotton, 100% linen, and I recycle that into paper, making paper. Um, I don't make all the paper myself, but I teach classes, usually like once or twice a year, and all of the uh, material to make the paper from I supply because a lot of it is scrap fabric. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, it's, uh, I have a post about that on Instagram way oh. back in my feed. I'll try to pull that maybe into the, the show notes. Um, uh, I haven't seen that at all. I'll have to yeah, take yeah. A look at that. And uh, the fabric in the uh, Instagram post is um, from a customer's skirts. Oh. Yeah. That's so that's. I, I think this is the the part that I, I, I just I, I'm like amazed at um, all of the the things that people do. There's there's so much like DIY stuff out there, but you know it always involves you know going to the store and buying something and fashioning something together. And right. I think my you know my, my sister in law does a lot of these kinds of things. She'll go on Pinterest and she'll find, get different design inspirations and things. I think she has like one of those Cricut machines. I mean, there's yeah, all kinds yeah. of, of of things, but. To get to the point where you're you're able to repurpose something and give it new life somehow, that it doesn't just go into the the landfill. Right. Um, yeah, it's more difficult and time consuming than people think. Um, oh. Like the uh, I was I think I was telling you a few days ago about uh, making a bag for a customer and she was repurposing, uh, garments, ski jackets, mostly ski apparel. Right. And she had all these great colors, you know, and, and different textures and things like that. And we were trying to do a bag for her, but, uh, the processing of the jackets was very, uh, time intensive. And so she was doing that all herself, but it just became, not really sustainable because the garments were all lined and quilted and, you know, so she was coming up with a lot of different textiles and it was hard to put the weights together and, uh, or the different thicknesses and the materials. So, um, it's, it's, it has to be a passion because there's a lot to it. And, um, you know, I'm sure my children, some of whom don't live with me anymore because they're grown up, um, are tired of me telling them not to use paper towels anymore and don't buy the macaroni and cheese in the little plastic cup and, you know, trying to work, do workarounds with that. And it, it's, it takes some forethought, you know, and some effort to, to live, you know, sustainably. So it's, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. No, it's <laughs> certainly it's certainly not, and I it, I think you know this this all um, I think this all kind of brings up this whole idea of, of upcycling material and and all of that. And I know what was it maybe a month and a half ago that, that we reconnected right. and uh, the, you you had this opportunity with uh, some of the, this other material that you had uh, kind of fallen into your lap from someone. Um, 
where they, 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 it was going to go into the, the landfill, essentially, yeah. um, unless you could breathe new life into it. And we got talking about, hey, is there something we could, we could make out of this? And I think this even like she stems back to an earlier conversation, maybe a, a, over a year ago now, yeah, um, yeah. where I was talking with folks at Ashland Farm Coffee down in Old Saybrook. And, and they, like I think many of the roasters, you know, they, they get the coffee beans arrive in those right. sort of burlap yep. mm-hmm. bags. And so they have, you know, they have stacks of these things and you know they, they found creative ways of using them but they have a lot right and and what do you do with that and so I was like oh I wonder if we could that interesting is biodegradable oh so they could just bury it sort of like a or they could use it as like in place of the the landscaping plastic to keep weeds down put those down yeah and then it eventually rots into the to the landscape that makes sense yeah See, there's always a million yeah. different ways of, of reusing things. But I just thought, like, how cool would it be to, to make a, a decaf coffee tote bag or yeah, something, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, again, kind of, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's kind of, it's, I don't know, it's just it's a, another uh, quirky way of, of connecting with the things that we have, I, I think, right. in, in a way. That, surra- um, that are surrounding us. Well, I, yeah. think, I think people probably are a little bit more aware of the plastic nature of fabric. Right. Because a lot of fabric is basically made of plastic. Um, And of the idea of microplastics in our waterways, in the soil, in the food we eat, in our own bodies. Um, I, I've heard our bloodstreams actually have microplastic in them because the particles are so tiny. So, um, and a lot of that is from um, degrading fabric. So the fibers are pulled out of the fabric that you're wearing and they're in the atmosphere in your home and then basically are ingested by you and become right. part of your your makeup. But So people don't realize that 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 thing that you have that's made of polyester or nylon or whatever is not biodegradable. It would go into a landfill and be there forever, basically. It's not going to rot. And so it's, a, it's an issue. You know, all the throwaway fashion, like you said, the fast fashion, is in landfills. And it's going to be there forever and ever and ever. Right. So, you know, what, what can you do about that as an average human being? Right. You know? Well, and I, I think, I, I hope, um, gosh, I was, I was listening to, I think it was an, uh, a podcast of, of Andrew Sullivan who was talking with someone about veganism and trying to understand, like, still trying to understand, uh, uh, you know, the, this, the, the moral, um, ethical aspect of, of veganism. And I, I bring... I, I bring that up because I think it was there was a point that they made at one point in, their, in this conversation about um, the the, sh- the the almost like the the shaming right that I think mm. you know the the I think the, the standing right. joke is of course you know you, you know you know someone's a vegan because they told you fourteen times it's like you know yeah. you know they went to Harvard because they tell you every day and and so I think the the emphasis here though is is not in it, it, sure, educate, make aware, all that kind of stuff. But I think it's in creating more opportunities for you to make the decision that would have you, you know, purchase an upcycled product or purchase something that's, that's made out of, you know, 100% cotton or, or is a, a wool product, right. um, something that, uh, that, that may be more, um, yeah, that is biodegradable or that is um, more, I guess it's more sustainable right. in in general, um, not to overstate the the sustainability aspect word. Yeah, that that word gets thrown around, <laughs> around a lot too. Yeah, more jargon. But I, I think um, I, I that that's what I that's what I really appreciate. I think at the at the end is like, hey, you know, we can we can create more opportunities to to do this. And you know, in this case with these with these tote bags, you know, we're talking about making this little this like mini collection of, of farmer's market totes um, and, and uh, produce bags and things out of this material. And in that way, we're, we're upcycling. It's, it's, not, it's getting a, a second life or, you know, maybe, it, maybe rather than lasting forever in the 
landfill. It lasts forever in the back of your car, and you're using it when you're when you're doing your shopping, or out and about, or, or right. carrying things um, about. But I think, you know, I, I also think about the fact that when you know when I get the chance to work with someone like you, it's you know to many of the things you've already talked about. It's it's putting it's putting you and and your team to work right. It's not um, you know some low wage uh, factory worker or or some mass produced thing. Um, and to the extent that it is in America, you know I think a lot of things still are you know somewhat handmade and and there's that um, that direct uh, you know cra- when we're talking about the craftsmanship and all that kind of thing. I know when we're looking at like the handles and and the design there and, and other things that. There's there's a little bit there is some care in in that, um, so I, I I you know I think there's a lot to feel good about making that decision to not only to to do this project and get this out there but I think for for folks to know that when they are buying something that's either uh, made made from from you um, or or anybody in that similar kind of uh, I don't know like local sewing shop. I don't know if yeah, there are like, even many of them. Like but hi- hyper local. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's something to be said for that. Um, and the more that we can do to, to get the word out um, for people that, that do fall into that category of people we were talking about from the very beginning, um, who are we're a little bit weird and that, you know, we, we overthink all of those and we sweat the details and we're willing to drive the extra mile or, or search the internet, you know, and right, read all the right. things and and make a decision. Well, if it makes you feel any better, all my customers are like that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, the, I've got one guy in Boston that I'm working on a patented product with, and he's like, "Well, can you measure the height of this Velcro um, patch thing that we? So I know exactly how thick the Velcro is going to be." And yeah, so um, I think that's that's a big wow. thing when when people take the care to make a thing that represents them and their idea as perfect as possible and then you've got the customer on the other end who who you know they like that perfectly crafted meal or that perfectly crafted piece of music or a well-written poem or or a, a tote bag where someone has said okay well let's make the the it four layers thick because that's better than two, and here's why. And let's make a version that has these extra reinforcements at the handle for, you know, so you can uh, bring home um, that entire bag of zucchini that your neighbor wants you to have. Um, <laughs> and, and it's really heavy. I love those neighbors. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Um, and so, uh, I think that that is just a, it's a beautiful thing. It, it really is. And it's a worthwhile thing to be appreciated for your thought and your effort and your, your sense of, of um, wanting to meet a goal of being as good as possible. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think I, I always, I forget sometimes, you know, the, a lot of times, you mentioned patents and, and things, but uh, however technical or, or, or not technical, I think often too that you see innovation in general. There's always this very close connection between the the end user, you mm-hmm. know, the, 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 the use case, what is this for, what's the purpose of the design and the requirements and all of that, and the ability to prototype and to create and actually, you know, design for manufacturability, and so it's, uh, you know, to, to know that 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 is happening right here, yeah, um, is well, you know, and being able to, I guess, ha- I, you know, would love to be able to. I hope we have more of that. Yeah, now. well, Connecticut's been doing that for hundreds of years. You know, it uh, the the the. Um, People say, I'm not exactly sure, <laughs> that the bobby pin was invented in Connecticut. Really? Yeah. And uh, they also, there's an argument between two different cities in Connecticut over who made George Washington's inaugural suit. 
That got brought up earlier. So yeah, so <laughs> so you know, the, this is not a new thing for Connecticut. And now you know, Collins Aerospace in Windsor makes the Na the um, NASA spacesuits for Artemis, for God's sake. Ah. You know, so you know, this is not anything new. That and you know, the first um, nuclear-powered submarine. Right. So this is a Connecticut thing, you know, making innovative stuff. Making, not writing it down on a piece of paper because you're an insurance agent. Yes. Not casting any shade. <laughs> but, you know, that's what little. we do in Connecticut. We make stuff. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, I, I want to go back to one other thing before we, we, we move on that, that uh, you know, we were talking about labor you know, wages, and, and um, you mentioned the, the people, um, this, the other uh, of the two missions mm. um, for, your, for your business. Where does that motivation come from? Why, why is that important to you? Well, I mean, I've done a lot of, of sewing businesses over the years, and I just felt like I wanted to uh, work with a population that wasn't getting a fair shake. And I found out that the, there are two prisons in the state that have sewing uh, shops in them. And uh, it just seemed like kind of a natural thing to take the people who already had experience and give them jobs in that same field if, you know, if they wanted. I mean, people work in, in jobs in prisons that they don't ever want to do again. But there are some people who like what they do in prison, and then they want to do that again. But I went to visit the um, Osborne, the men's prison in um, Enfield, and I was naively talking about how great it was that these guys were getting experience with these sophisticated embroidery machines and how great that was going to translate to a job You know, when they got out, and they were like, yeah, except then we have to tell people where we learned how to use the embroidery machine. And I was like, oh, duh. <laughs> you know, they, they, people don't want to hire returning citizens for one reason or another. And, you know, Connecticut's doing a pretty good job with it. But there are just so many um, uh, stumbling blocks that people have to navigate when they get out of out of prison and so having a job waiting for you would be a pretty awesome thing or getting a job in something that you really liked you know would would hopefully be a, a thing that would bring you joy so and make you yeah. feel like you're successful uh, absolutely yeah there, there's something to I think the you know, when you're making something, at the end of it, you've you've got this yeah. there's this sense of accomplishment yeah, yeah. too, right? Uh, I think that comes sure. with anybody's work, but I think it's 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 the most tangible when there's literally a thing, a pile of things. <laughs> yeah, when oh, you're done. You have. Um, so now this is great. Thank you, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I know you've got a lot of things going on, um, and. I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this, uh, what, what, I, what I hope to be my famous question here, which is, you know, what are three local recommendations that you have here in Connecticut? You know, these could be places to go, artists to shop, things to do, or things you haven't done yet. Maybe it's something on your, your Connecticut bucket list. Um, well, one of the things, or actually a whole list of things that I haven't done is um, I am a member at WNPR, and uh, we get the Connecticut Magazine every month. And Peter Martika writes a column in there of places to, to go for like a hike or something. Oh. And I haven't done a single one. Not oh, one. I will drag you out on a Sunday. I go every week. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a deal. <laughs> so I, I tear the page out before I recycle the magazine. So now I've got this stack of pages of all these places that he's talked about. And I, I, I heard he's also on Twitter, but um, I just wait for the monthly magazine and I, I go right to his column and find out whatever new place it is that he has just been. Um, another place that I haven't been uh, lately is um, Sweet Harmony in Middletown. I used to go there, but now it's a different company, different people running it. 
And so I want to go back there because now their Instagram feed is showing, showing all these fabulous foods that I've never had before. Um, and of course, it's all you know baked goods. Yes. What's not to like about that? Um, so, uh, so I definitely uh, want to do that. And um, oh, gee, what was the other thing? Oh, I want to go to the new Bruce Museum. Um, because they just expanded it. Now it's like twice as big as it was before. Where I don't know if I know. In Greenwich. Oh, Greenwich. okay. Yeah. Is there a specific focus? Like, the... No, I just want to see what's new. Oh, okay. It's not a, it used to not be terribly large, um, but now it's apparently twice as large. Hmm. And this is an art museum? Yeah, okay. art and science, strangely. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I definitely want to check out the new uh, Bruce Museum. Wonderful. We'll see what they're up to down there. Well, Mary Ruth, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Such fun, Donald. Thank you so much. Excellent. And, oh, I have not even asked you, where if people are, are interested in learning more about you or in, in where, you know, if, they, if they've got ideas or I don't know what, what, have, what have you, um, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, the best thing to do would be to go to United Sewing and, it's A-N-D, design.com. And you can read, there's a page about me, uh, there's uh, um, a menu of all the different things that we can do for customers who are looking to design something. Um, and then at the very last page is a contact us form. And you can fill that out and it goes right to my inbox. Um, one other good thing that people sometimes do uh, to contact me is that they maybe have a piece of sewing equipment or material that they want to get rid of and you can contact me through the Contact Us page. And then, um, depending on where you're located, I might go pick up the fabric or equipment that you have. And so, um, I've given away a lot of free sewing machines to people um, that other people have given me, and um, a lot of fabric to uh, groups right here in Hartford. Um, yeah, so that's another way that you can Keep stuff out of the waste stream, yeah, by contacting me. Wonderful. Yeah, it is wonderful.